please stand as you can to for the reading of God's word. The reading for today is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. I will be reading the scripture uh, in French, and the English translation will be on the screen for you to follow. I read. Jésus se rendit dans la région de Césarée de Philippe. Il interrogeait ses disciples. Que disent les gens au sujet du Fils de l'homme? Qui est-il d'après eux? Il répondit. Pour les uns, c'est Jean-Baptiste. Pour d'autres, Élie. Pour d'autres, encore, Jérémie ou un autre prophète. Et vous, lui demanda-t-il, qui, qui dites-vous que je suis? Simon-Pierre lui répondit, tu es le Messie, le fils de Dieu vivant. Et Sus lui dit alors, tu es heureux, Simon, fils de Jonah, car... Ce n'est pas de toi-même que tu as trouvé cela. C'est mon Père Céleste qui te l'a révélé. Et toi, je te déclare, tu es pierre, et sur cette pierre, je bâtirai mon église, contre laquelle la mort elle-même ne pourra rien. Je te donnerai les clés du royaume des cieux. Tout ce que tu interdiras sur la terre sera interdit aux yeux de Dieu. Et tout ce que tu autoriseras, sur la terre serait autorisé aux yeux de Dieu. Puis Jésus interdit à ses disciples de dire à qui que ce soit qu'il était le Messie. This is God's word. Please be seated. Morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, my name is Brian. If I have never met you before, I'm the pastor here at Trinity City Church. Uh, kids, preschool to first grade, you're dismissed uh, for uh, Sunday school or children's church. And a reminder to parents to pick your kids up either right before or right after you take communion. We're in a sermon series right now called The Wonderful Life. We're right in the middle of it, and we just finished kind of a significant section of it, the foundational part of this sermon series, where we essentially looked at this framework of the big picture of, of the story of Scripture, creation, fall, and redemption. So last week's sermon looked at the good news of restoration and how comprehensive, how glorious that news is, and how we, uh, as a people, are a testimony that we've been swept up into this glorious gospel. And now, as we consider the second half of the sermon series, uh, we essentially are going to start unpacking uh, the question, what is your salvation for? Now that God has saved you and you've been brought into the wonderful life of Christ, now what? What is our calling? And some of the sermons that we are going to be looking at today, we're going to be focusing on our calling in the church Next week, the uh, calling in our relationships, our family lives, our friendships, and how God's restoration works there. Uh, then on uh, October 31st, we're going to be looking at the restoration of work and how God's wonderful life is applied to our vocations. And then we're going to look at the restoration of culture, public life, and then a final sermon will be wrapping things up where the Bible wraps up in the book of Revelation and how this wonderful life does uh, just bring to its conclusion in a new heaven and new earth. Uh, so that's the sermon series, and that's where we're at right now, especially if you're just joining us, you're kind of entering right into the middle, uh, but at a bit of a pivotal part in the sermon series. Now, before I pray, I'm actually going to open in not only prayer 
pray to illuminate our hearts um, through the preaching of God's word, but it also will be a prayer of lament. I just found out probably like 30 minutes before I came out here that our city encountered a shooting, a pretty significant one, last night. Um, and that's why I want to start with lament. If you're not familiar with what happened, um, there, I guess it was right after midnight in this uh, food truck, uh, f uh, food court that's over by the Excel uh, Center in downtown St. Paul. Uh, gunfire erupted a little after midnight and 14 people were injured and one person died. The 14 people that were injured in that gunfire were, are likely to recover, but it was a pretty significant uh, tragedy. Police officers described coming to that scene as a hellish situation. So really heavy news, guys, that's happening in our city. And I want to just take a moment before we lean into God's word to lament and to pray. So let's do that. Let's pray. Why, Lord, must evil seem to get its way? Hear this lament as our prayers fill this space in our city. We plead with you, Lord, repair the brokenness of our city. The wicked are openly scornful. The violence mocks your name and laughs at the pain of others. But we know, Lord, that your providential love holds true. Nothing can curse us endlessly with sorrow because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we ask you to transform this damage into good, to show us your glory hidden by this evil. Hear our lament, Lord, and hear this intercessory prayer. And as we turn to your word, may it speak powerfully into our life and make us hopeful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Many people have asked me this question in the last uh, several months, but have you been listening to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill? And if you are listening to that and wondering if I've been listening to it, the answer is yes, I have been. Overall, I think it's been a well-done podcast. I have some criticisms. They're really nitpicky, uh, type A type of criticisms, but I think it's a good podcast. If you're not familiar with it and what the storyline is, it tells the story of a, uh, a church in Seattle that raised to significance, especially in early 2000s and into the 2010s, and uh, grew really, really exponentially, grew into a movement. Uh, the pastor's name at the helm of that church is uh, Pastor Mark Driscoll, and the significance of the story wasn't just the rise of this significant ministry, as you can hear in the title, it was also its fall. It, was, it seemed that literally overnight, in the matter of days and weeks, the whole ministry dissolved and imploded. And so the podcast tells that story and has a bunch of highlights of how this happened. And, and really, it's really introspective, too, because it gets you to ask, as a listener, why did this not only happen here, but how can we see some of these destructive tendencies in uh, the broader church as well? And uh, it talks about things, how we need to be careful to make sure that we don't say, hey, the ends justify the means, so we, we can just, as long as the ministry's growing and has got a big budget, then we can ignore some of the more harmful things that it takes to get there. It highlights uh, those types of tendencies. One of the reasons I brought up this 
podcast, however, though, is, is that it's a, a kind of a deeply personal thing for me to listen to. Uh, the other thing that's occurring today, if you didn't know, is that it's Trinity's 11th anniversary since we launched this church. So that's good news, and God has been faithful to us. But one of the things that I was uh, reflecting on as I was reflecting on the mission of the church is some of the very challenging and hurtful things that have happened in, in trying to even get a church like this off the ground. And there was this intersection uh, in our, our story with what happened in Mars Hill. Uh, it wasn't just this church that Driscoll started, but also a network called the Acts 29 Network. And when I was a young guy in seminary, uh, my wife and I were put through an assessment process with Acts 29, and they were just, they were rookies at this point, and they were just getting off the ground. They flew us out to San Diego, and we went there because we uh, wanted to and felt called uh, to plant a church. The elders of our local church in Evanston, Illinois, was confirming that and trying to encourage us to do that and equip us to do that. And so we went to this uh, assessment very, very hopeful. And one of the reasons I think we were drawn to this network is they had both theological commonality with where we were at and where I continue to be, and also a very similar approach to mission and a passion to plant churches, so it just seemed like a good fit. However, that assessment was atrocious and nearly made me want to quit church planting altogether and maybe ministry. I mean, that's how hurtful this experience was. We went into that assessment, and it felt like there were these other two guys that were, it was, a, it was actually three guys. One guy was really, really quiet. Uh, the other two guys, they felt like just these, these pastoral dude bros, right? And they just, they, they were coming after me, and it was wild because they weren't much older than me. We were kind of in a very similar stage of life. They might be like a couple chapters ahead in the ministry process, but they just for whatever reason, had it out for me. I felt like my two older brothers were the ones that were doing the assessment, and they were like these teenagers that forgot to develop a brain, right? It was just really, really hard. And we got the assessment results back, and they essentially said, you should not apply in a church, not this church, not any church, and gave us this litany of things to, to work on. And I remember reading it with my wife, and we're just like, what is this? It's like they didn't know us, and we took it to our elders because we were so confused, and we were like, do you see this in our life as well? Is this something that you can affirm? And they're like, I don't know what they're talking about and why they were so aggressive towards you. And now listening to this podcast kind of puts that uh, culture that was behind that, that hurtful culture, into perspective for us. Now, one of the reasons I opened with a, a story like this, that's, this, it's just a bummer of a story, right? Like, why? It's not a really strong lead to a sermon, right, on the church, to just be like, yeah, I agree, the church kind of sucks, right? It hurt, me, it hurt me, too. Yay! 11th anniversary, let's go, guys. Um, here's the reason why. Uh, I, by God's grace, Tracy and I are still in it. And many of you, I've had, a story, I've had stories and conversations with you about these types of stories, these types of things where there have been significant challenges with your involvement in churches, significant hurts that have happened in your life, but yet you're here, you're showing up, and you're gathering around the mission of Jesus. And one of the things I see there that's in common with all of us that have, have bruises and have been a little bit battered uh, by ministry in this life, the common thing that I think holds us together is that we still are blown away by the beauty of God's mission, even in the brokenness, even in the pain, and even in the hurt. And I think right now there's, there's a um, chance that we could 
overemphasize the pain and the hurt and the defects of the church. And I think we need to be honest about those things, which is what I'm attempting to do in the opening. But, the, the, but brothers and sisters, that's not the thing that keeps us gathering. That's not the thing that keeps us believing. It's how God uses the hurt for good and how God um, raises the pain to new life to bring restoration. It's how in the mix of all these things that we experience in church, we still see beauty and we're still drawn to love the church. I often pray, Lord, I want to see the church as you see it because you see all these things too, but you still love the church. You still would die for the church. Even you saw the church in all of its darkness when you were at that cross, but you still laid down your life for this precious gathering of people. And I want to see the church like you see it, because when we see the church in that type of beauty as Christ sees it, that's what keeps us gathering. That's what keeps us on mission. And so that's what I want to attempt to do in this uh, sermon is to focus on four things that I love about the church. Why I'm still doing this. Why I still love being a pastor. Why I still love being shoulder to shoulder with you brothers and sisters in this great mission. So here are four things that I love about the church and why I still think that the church is one of the main sources for a wonderful life. Number one, I love the mission of the church. I love the mission of the church. Historically, evangelicals have tended to emphasize what's called word ministry, proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, and then mainline churches have historically emphasized deed ministries, acts of service, and doing of justice. And one of the things that's, I think, unique about this new generation of folks that are taking leadership in church is you hear a history like that and you're just like, well, why can't we have our cake and eat it too? That seems like the dumbest thing to kind of pull apart what God has meant to be together. And that's one of the things we have always sought to capture in our own mission statement, that we are making disciples of Jesus Christ who join in the renewal of our city and world. Both things are happening. We're making disciples. We're seeing people come to Christ and get baptized in the waters of baptism. But God is at work. His kingdom and our desire that St. Paul in Minneapolis would be as it is in heaven is part of our mission. We want to not only proclaim the gospel, but see the impact of the gospel in a transformative way. And I would say, like, our mission statement is not unique. You, you should hear that mission statement and be like, I think I've heard it before. Yes, pretty much every biblical church rewords and repackages that statement because it comes from Scripture. We just have different ways of plagiarizing the Great Commission and the kingdom of God and then the calling that we have to participate in that. That's what we are up to. Nonetheless, there is a relationship between word and deed ministry. There's an urgency in Scripture that puts proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in the center of what we do. It is the most important calling is for us to proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus. But yet, if that word ministry doesn't bear fruit, and it's the fruit of justice, righteousness, and mercy, then the faith of such a ministry is dead, according to James. And that's why we want to fuse those things together. And there is no greater 
thing to commit your time to. I feel like in this culture, we're so distracted by other causes and other missions. And one of the things we're going to do in the next several sermons is to show you how those different things that you participate in in different areas of your life are indeed a part of this mission. But one of the things I think that helps helps us stay focused is when we remember how amazing this calling is. That God is at work and he is our highest good. That he has created you to enjoy him and to love him. And that all the brokenness that you see in this world, in your life, and even in the church is not going to have the final word. But he is calling us in the power of the resurrection, his death and resurrection, to participate in restoration. And he is asking you to participate. He could do it himself. But he asks us, scrubs, to give a little bit of time to this thing. And what better thing are you going to give your time to? What better thing is going to bring the best possible news and lasting change to this broken city and broken world unless it's this gospel that has the power of God's word and the power of God's wonderful works behind it. It's why in Acts chapter 2, when the, the, the church is born at the, the, the day of Pentecost, why they are said to be proclaiming the wonders of God. Acts 2, 11 through 13, it's listing all these different types of people group, and it says, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. And amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does that mean? What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they had too much wine. And that's such a funny verse to me, because sometimes I think we, we think in our head that as long as we have the power of the Spirit, proclaiming wonderful works, there's a miracle happening in their midst, right? You would think they would have nothing but, but to just open up the waters of baptismals and see a great revival. And indeed, there were some in the crowd as they were hearing God move and the Holy Spirit coming down on his church and as they're declaring the wonders of God, some are saying, what does this mean? But others are like, ah, these suckers are just drunk. The, the church has always had uh, confusion associated with it. So Because it is a confusing thing. When God's people, broken people, get together and we proclaim the wonders of God, some are curious and some are skeptical. And that's just the nature of this mission. As you know, that this verse is the, 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 the verse that brings the title of this series to fruition. A wonderful life includes declaring the wonders of God. And what the verse has in mind isn't just a specific account or specific aspect of God's wonderful work, say Christ's death and resurrection, but all of it, his creation, his purposes for us as image bearers, the restoration, the pouring of the spirit that you're justified, sanctified, adopted, that God is going to create a new heavens, new earth. It's the whole thing. And it gets very personal for you too because not only are you called to proclaim the gospel, but when you see God's powerful work uh, occurring in your daily life so that you see these little ordinary acts of restoration and light and renewal, you too are to proclaim that as of God and from God and for God's glory. This is a glorious mission, brothers and sisters, that we are called to participate in, and there is nothing better to give your life and your time and your devotion to. It is a beautiful thing, and there's not one other mission that has this gravity and glory to it. Number two, what I love about the church. I love the humility of the church. 
And you see the humility of the church in a couple different ways. One way is in the regular act of confession, because it takes humility for sinners to confess their sins. 1 John 1, 8 through 9 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. There is freedom in confession and comfort in the assurance that comes from confession. It's difficult to put up a front when you confess uh, your own brokenness. Our temptation is to put up a veneer of righteousness, that we have it all together, we have it all figured out, that this church has it all figured out, that the individuals in here, we, we are making the right decisions and making the right choices in life. But when you gather as a church under the preaching of the gospel, you can't stay fake like that for long. It forces you and urges you to be honest real quick of the reality that this gospel exists because we sinners have ruined everything, but Christ is restoring all things. And that's why when uh, the saints gather in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a big component of that, whether it's with friends in your life that you're confessing your sins to, or corporately we're confessing our sins, it's a main component because of the humility of the church. I don't know if you've ever held on to something so long, even though maybe deep down you admit that there's something maybe about your life that's off and broken and that it's just a show. Because it's exhausting to put on a show. Have you ever went from a, a, an experience in your life where you were putting on a show for so long and you were fake for so long and then finally you had that moment where you just finally dropped your guard and just said, you know what, this is what I really am like. This is what I'm struggling with. That's real freedom that happens when you do that. This happened to me as a Minnesotan, and one of the things I've often said in this church is that uh, many of you are not Minnesotans, so you get to uh, have the ministry of telling me what's wrong with Minnesota culture. And one of the things that comes up every single year and everybody that moves into this state is how atrocious the drivers are. Minnesota drivers are the worst. Has any of you said that? Actually, most of you have said that to me. And at first, I was offended when people would say this to me. I'm Minnesotan. We're driving is just fine, right? What are you talking about? Uh, but then I went to Chicago and almost died and realized it was my clumsy driving that contributed to that, right? There's something, there was something about the culture I grew up in that was a little off. And, and one of the ways you see, you actually see it in a couple of different ways. You see it in zipper merges. Right? Minnesotans do not, yeah, right, amen. Minnesotans, <laughs> Minnesotans do not know how to zipper merge. We have signs up to try to teach us how to zipper merge, but we will not do it. One time I was driving to northern Minnesota, I now have, have switched to zipper merging the way you're supposed to, but this semi got mad at me once and jumped out in front of me on the shoulder to try to prevent me from zipper merging so I couldn't even get around him. I guarantee that semi was driven by a Minnesotan. Absolutely, that's what's going on. We do not know how to zipper merge. The other thing that we really struggle with is a four-way stop. You get four Minnesotans at a four-way stop, it ain't moving. And then, because you don't hear it, but what I imagine that's happening in every one of those cars is just like, oh, you go first. Oh, just try to slide past you here. Oh, oh here you go. You go first. It's just this, this kind of back and forth. It's the, and the same thing that's behind our inability to do zipper merges and our inability to figure out a four-way stop is the same reason that we refuse to take the last slice of pizza. We're trying to be nice. But sometimes when you try to be nice, 
then you turn in to be a terrible driver in the process because you're not following the rules. It's liberating to just admit something like that. I'm Minnesotan, all right, I don't have to put up a front. We're terrible at driving. I back into things all the time, that's fine. It's in my DNA as a Minnesotan. It's totally fine, okay, if that's who I am. I drive like a 75-year-old man that's blind. That's how I drive, but I'm trying to be nice about it, all right? So I get it. There is such freedom, brothers and sisters, in the humility of confessing what is real and what is true, and it is real and it is true that we are deeply flawed, broken sinners. It's why we do prayers of confession when we gather. No, no other institution is going to be real about that. You're not going to go to work and be like, we're going to start the day by admitting our faults and trying to see some assurance uh, in our brokenness that happens in the church. The other thing that I see in the humility of the church is expressed in something like Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. That phrase, selfish ambition, um, sticks out to me, especially in light of that podcast I, mission, I listened to. One of the things that was driving the eventual destruction of that ministry that was growing so rapidly was selfish ambition. And it really gave rise to an idol that sometimes happens in church, and it's the idolatry of achievement. Grow at any cost. And as long as it's growing, as long as it looks like it's successful on the outside, it must be good. But even though that is lo it looks like on the outside, if you look under the hood of such a ministry, you may find the idol of achievement that's grounded in this drive of selfish ambition. A more liberating way to think about church and our calling is to humbly admit that the thing we need to focus on is just serving one another and let God do his own scorecard. It's, it's liberating to embrace in, in humility that we are finite beings, that there's only so much that you can do, and that is okay, brothers and sisters. The most common criticism that I and maybe many of you church leaders have received when you are participating in ministry is this one. You could all, you, this could be better. You could do more. Yes, that's never going to go away. We can always be better. We can always do more. There's, there's an infinite number of things that we can do as a church because there's an infinite amount of problems in our city and in our world, but one church and one Christian can't possibly do all the things. And it's so liberating to say, this is what God has called us to do. This is what he's called me to do. And that's okay because we have a big, infinite God that's going to take care of these bigger problems. I just need to be faithful to what God is calling me to do here. J.I. Packer recently wrote this, quote, The way of health and humility is for us to admit to ourselves that in the final analysis, we do not and cannot know the measure of our success the way God sees it. Wisdom says, leave success ratings to God and live your Christianity as a religion of faithfulness rather than an idolatry of achievement. And there is something beautiful when the church embraces that posture of humility. Number three, I love the gathering of the church. 
One of the things that's sometimes helpful to do with really religious words like gospel or church is to remember what their very like secular meaning was in their original context. I mentioned that a bit last week when I talked about gospel being good news, and it could be announcing like a big victory that, that has happened in your nation because of a, uh, a, a turning point in a battle, and you announced good news, and that's one of the ways we can wrap our mind around what gospel means. Church has a similar meaning when you don't automatically think about this type of thing. Uh, when church was originally used, it just, it just simply meant assembly. When, when, when there was a, a gathering of people, you'd call them a church because they were assembling uh, for some purpose. It didn't have to be a religious purpose, but they were just simply assembling uh, for some type of purpose. So at heart, the church means gathering assembly that we come together and what do we do when we get together acts 2:42 they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer and that's what we do when we gather whether it's in our homes or in this space we submit to God's word hear what it has to say let God's powerful word transform our life we participate in fellowship with one another we participate in in sharing life together and to prayer breaking bread at this table, seeing baptisms. These are all the things that we do when we gather together. And one of the things, I've always been drawn to physical church buildings, right? I've always been drawn to them. And it's like this physical testimony of this reality because, because churches, they want to gather. And so we've built places to do that in. In the early church, they gathered in temples and in homes. And even to this day, we build our own churches. We meet in schools. We meet in warehouses. But we want places where this type of thing happens because that's what the church does we gather and when you drive around this city and you see all those majestic gorgeous buildings and also the humble ones and the small the big ones it doesn't matter they're a testimony for this desire that the church has and it's to gather under God's word and to and service of one another and fellowship that's what we like to do and I think when we realize that this is what the heart of the church is, that we gather and we can't help ourselves, we need to gather, it really describes the last year and a half and why it's been so hard, right, brothers and sisters? I've been so encouraged by how this church uh, is doing what it takes not to be careless about this virus, not to carelessly spread it around, and we've been trying to be safe and cautious, and that's been a good thing, uh, but it's come at a cost, and that's one of the things I, I, it's kind of refreshing to admit. It's, it's been hard. Virtual church isn't the same, right? When, it, when you aren't able to gather in a way um, that God's people have done for centuries, it just feels different, and your soul isn't as encouraged, and the reality behind that is that there is a reason why that's the case. If you feel that your spirituality in the last year and a half has taken a bit of a dive, this is probably one of the reasons why. It's because it, for us to serve our neighbors and to serve one another, it's come at a great cost that we, over the last year and a half, haven't been, to get, been able to gather as we used to be able to do. I often think about how maybe even our hearts and what the worship would have been like that, that last Sunday in March before all this changed everything, right? How much more appreciative we would have been about that last normal service. And we will get there again, brothers and sisters. 
But one of the things I'm just sharing with you right now and what I want us to be just honest about is that this is hard, and it's been hard. And the reason why is because the church is meant to gather. And I think it just was hard with all the things that were happening in our city, in our personal lives, our struggle with isolation, the injustice in our city. One of the things that we've done historically and the church does historically is we would gather and we would lament and we would hug one another and we would hear congregational singing. And so after the season, we've experienced the hit of sacrificing that a little bit. And I pray that the Lord continues to help us to persevere until we continue to slowly go back to the glory of what it is to be able to gather as God's people. Number four, I love the diversity of the church. The diversity of the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6 says, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Note the language of difference yet same. He keeps going back and forth. There are different kinds of gifts, one spirit. There are different kinds of service, the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but all of them is the same God at work. Different, same, different, same. And that type of language is a very important category for you to understand what happens in the church and why the church is called to be diverse in very various ways. We are diverse by being a global faith. That's one of the reasons if, you've ever, if you're new here and you're wondering, why do we do scripture reading in different language? Because it draws to this reality that this is one global faith of different tongues, tribes, and nations that worship the one Lord, the same God, and are a part of the same mission despite our differences. In 1 Corinthians 12, that difference is, is described as a difference of gifts, that we have different things that we bring to the body of Christ, and later it describes uh, what happens here with that imagery of body, that you have ears and hands and, and feet, and they all are part of one body save, serving one purpose, but they have different ways of achieving that purpose. It's one of the ways I think often about evangelism. You know how scripture says there's evangelists and people that practice hospitality and people that teach. You need all of that in, a, in, in the life of a new believer. Because if you just had one gift, if, if the body of Christ was just one big ear called the evangelist, it wouldn't get much done. Because maybe this evangelist isn't very good at hospitality. They're very bold in proclaiming the gospel, but they forget to offer you a cup of coffee and something to eat. And then when that is the circumstance, it's just like, yeah, interesting message, but you're not a very warm hospitable personality, right? So that's kind of, kind of like maybe the stereotype, but you put those two together and along with the teacher and the evangelist is teaming up with the, the person in the body of Christ that loves hosting, loves rolling out the best food and the best drinks, and then they are friends with this bolder person that they may struggle with sharing the gospel, but this evangelist doesn't, and that person is invited into that house leads a person to Christ over a warm cup of coffee or a warm dish of food. And then the teacher is there as well because evangelists might be good at preaching the gospel, but maybe they aren't able to go very deep 
and the teacher comes in into the body of Christ, and then that person leads a new person who just had faith in Jesus into a deeper knowledge of knowing Christ. It is beautiful to see the diversity of Christ with your gift set, and all of it's significant. Don't think anything that you do on Sunday or throughout the week is, is bottom-shelf gift set. It all contributes to the restoration of all things. But there's another way to think about um, the church with this idea of a body with many different parts uh, or an organism with different branches. You can look at it as a local church where you have different individuals that bring different things to the table. But I also like to look at the historic and global church through this lens as well. Many of you might be discouraged that there's different denominations and different, different kind of uh, uh, splintering of the Christian faith in our world. And there is something to that. I mean, there are some ridiculous reasons why we have formed different associations and different denominations uh, around uh, our faith. But there's another way to see it. And the other way to see it is that this is another way that God in his mis mysterious way of unfolding his plan has decided to reach the globe for his cause. Because here's the reality. It's not just going to be Presbyterians that are going to reach everybody for Christ, or Anglicans, or Pentecostal, or Free Church uh, urbanites. It's not going to happen that way. There needs to be a diversity of approach in the rich history of how Christians unite around us similar yet diverse causes. And one of the things that, that when you see the church this way, you don't like pass by different meeting houses where churches meet and think that you're in competition with them. No. No, you don't look at it like you're on different football teams like, oh, I'm the Vikings and they're the Packers and we're, we're, we're enemies of one another. No, you're, it's more like you're playing different positions on the same football team. That's the way to look at the different denominations. And one of the things that you start to appreciate when you see the church that way is the strengths that different denominations and different bodies of Christians bring to the table. I've appreciated different things from different denominations and different branches of Christianity. When the Anglican church has some of the best liturgy, so rich, so well-written. And, and one of the things I've always struggled with as a young Christian in my 20s with daily prayer because I can't focus. can't focus. When it's just me and my wandering thoughts, I'll give it 30 seconds before I'm thinking about the task list. But then I, I, I discovered the Anglican daily office where they have morning and evening prayers and a lectionary of short readings. And it just keeps me on task. And it was designed for somebody like me a short attention span that needs that has this drive to just get to work and you get a little bit of scripture and you get a little bit of guided prayer. Presbyterians, they're known for their commitment to clear theology and clear church polity, and I've learned a lot from that. The Methodists, you study the history of the Methodist church, it's one of the greatest examples of exponential growth in American church history. They came up with all these creative ways to start churches and plant churches. They used to put these people on horses, these circuit riders, and they would just go to different places throughout our nation and just start Bible studies that would just blow up into churches. They have one of the richest histories of church planting. The, the branches of the, the Catholic faith and the Orthodox faith, uh, yes, a Protestant can even say that there is beauty and something to learn there, and I have. I, one of my favorite things to do is to go into their church buildings because the way the whole architecture works is that it's trying to bring the grandeur of God to your soul. 
You go into a building like that and there's gravity and there's beauty and there's art everywhere that is unique to that tradition. We have the Pentecostals. If your prayer life is just bombing, befriend a Pentecostal and they will whip your butt into being a person of prayer. It is amazing. I've been in so many different ministry settings where, where my brothers and sisters in the Pentecostal faith have been leading prayer and those, those brothers and sisters know how to pray and know how to pray long and they don't need the Anglican book of prayer to guide them. They're focused and they're passionate and it's a beautiful thing. And then we have the free church, which we're a part of, where the strength of a free church is that we unite around the essentials of Christian theology, and we just try to keep the Christian mission simple and not complicated. That's the diversity of the church as well on a global and historic front. I want to conclude um, the sermon by talking more about this table and what happens here? Because one of the ways I always view what we do when we gather and we come to this table, it's just such a beautiful thing. It reminds me of growing up on a farm and like you're, you, when you grow up on a farm, like you spend so much energy working. You work, you're working, sun comes up, you work, 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 and then you finally get to go to a table and you get to sit down and you get to rest and you get to eat because you're tired and you're weary and you need some nourishment. It's this type of picture that I always have in mind when you all gather here at this table. This is like the farms that I grew up in. It was a family-run operation, and so is the church. This is the family. And you've been working hard this week, joining God in the restoration of all things, and you often come in here, if you're like me, weary and hurt and beat up. But that's exactly why we gather, and that's exactly why we come to this table, because this is a time to get some nourishment, to get some encouragement, to remember that God and his son Jesus Christ laid down his life and his broken body and shed blood, and that as we come to this table through faith, we're nourished at this table and we enjoy Christ's presence in a very unique way as he meets us at this table and he is there at the feast with us. This is what we need, brothers and sisters. This is why we gather. This is why we come to this table, because we need to be reminded of the power of the gospel, because we are going to scatter after this service again, and you're growing in, and going back into a city where people are wrestling with feeling isolated, like they don't have any friends to call in the middle of the night, and maybe even victims of gun, gun violence. There is so much brokenness in our city which is why we need to come to this table, be nourished in the gospel, and go back out there to join God in the renewal of our city and world. So let's do that right now. Let's